Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Our guest this week is the amazing Rachel Yang, who's a partner at Giant Leap, Australia's first 100% impact venture capital fund, backing founders who are using business as a force for good. Having escaped the clutches of a traditional corporate path in management consulting and corporate finance, Rachel's career in venture has flourished. She's admired across the startup sector for her integrity, intelligence and capacity to create value through collaboration. Always ready to invest in making the ecosystem stronger, Rachel is the co-chair of Startup Victoria, a non-profit grassroots organisation which supports startup founders to thrive and is also a member of the Victorian State Government's Innovation Task Force. Rachel is a fabulous person to spend some time with. Rachel, welcome. Fantastic to see you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. You're one of those people that whenever your name comes up, people say, she's amazing. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your background. How did you get to be in this position where people universally think you're fabulous? <laughs> I don't know about that, but um, thank you for the kind words. Maybe I'll start with a few things that guided my journey and my path to, towards impact and then go into the specifics about how I got into my career in VC. So growing up, we didn't have a, a lot of money. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to get a great education through getting a scholarship and through uh, family networks, really. And I just felt really privileged that I could get a great education but not come from that kind of background. So I felt between two worlds in some ways because I was so lucky to be able to have had that opportunity growing up, I felt like I had to do something good with it, um, really, and, you know, not have that wasted because a lot of people um, in a similar situation to me wouldn't have had that opportunity. Um, and I feel so grateful every day for that. So that really guided my journey into exploring where to. And so Actually, when I finished um, school, well, just before, I thought I wanted to be a doctor and I thought maybe that would be the way to go. But I realised after doing some work experience with a plastic surgeon that I just didn't really have the constitution for um, medicine. Uh, and I also uh, get quite attached and, and the empathy is really strong. And so I, I'd imagine I'd probably be too emotional to be a doctor as well. Um, and then I just decided that business may be something that I might get into. And so uh, you kind of at university don't know what you don't know. So you think um, maybe doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant of really your kind of only options. So I went into accounting thinking I might start my, my own business one day. Fast forward, I ended up getting into management consulting. I did um, a commerce arts degree and ended up working for KPMG. 
and working in management consulting, but advising government, so on policy programs, um, business cases, et cetera, because I thought if you can create structural change in areas like education, health, then, you know, you, you can make the biggest difference. But what I found was and what I, where I got quite frustrated was that um, you know, government doesn't always work as efficiently as we would like it to work. And so it, for me, was um, starting to get frustrated with, with the processes and the reports that we were producing indicating what were the best solutions weren't necessarily being implemented. And it got to the point where I'd written the same report that had been written a few years back and decided it wasn't the right path for me. I also spent some time in northeast Arnhem Land with an Indigenous community there, the Yolngu people. I worked with a small, an organisation that helped set up small-scale enterprises to train and employ the local Yolngu people to give them that empowerment to train and employ in areas that they would feel passionate about. So I set up a nursery, a local store, and really working with um, that organisation to create those opportunities. And when I got back and landed back in consulting, I actually had culture shock on the way back home because a 12-year-old girl died of septicemia while I was over in Arnhem Land. And for me, that's just not a disease that should, you know, that anyone should pass away from in this day and age, given the medical advancements we have, and particularly in Australia, um, knowing the care we have available in the city. So for me, it really made me think harder about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to create that impact. So then I um, started looking at other opportunities and ended up actually moving into infrastructure because I thought if you could build hospitals and schools and see those things being built, it's not really debatable around whether they're needed or not, then I would feel like I had that impact. But actually, there's a surprising amount of politics that gets kind of tied up with those things as well. And so then I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, what's the big dream? So I want to be able to have a really successful career so that I can then have the funds to invest in startups that are solving social and environmental problems. And he said to me, well, why don't you just do that now? You know, skip the super successful career bit where you make lots of money and, and then just start investing in startups. There's this fund called Giant Leap. Um, they've only just started. Maybe you should have a look at them. And it was actually the um, culmination of all of the things I'd ever kind of wanted to do really in, in one, one role. And the job, had, it was very serendipitous um, because the job popped up pretty much the day after that I um, had this conversation my friend and so I applied and then ended up getting the role so that was back when Giant Leap had just started we just made two investments in two of the impact companies that we invest in and so that's fast forward now we're five years down the track and here I am. I'm interested in because venture's a little bit unconventional or, or it was five or ten years ago as you say, having been in that situation where you feel that responsibility, you know, having had community and family support and having received scholarships, was there any pressure that you felt sort of deviating from the sort of high status name value brand of a big company or a big government department to go and work somewhere that was a little bit untested, a little bit unknown? Yeah, a huge amount of pressure. I, I 
I'm still not convinced my mum knows what I do. <laughs> so um, it was a really tough decision because I was doing really well in my corporate job, getting promoted pretty regularly. It was something that I felt like I was climbing the corporate ladder and becoming successful and I could see where I could go. But what for me really were two defining moments was I realised I could see what my future life would be at that point in time if I stayed in that corporate role. There was no maybe my life will look like X, Y, Z. It'll This definition of what the kind of corporate, climbing the corporate ladder, this is what my life will look like. Am I happy in that life? And then there was a question around purpose. Am I really doing what I think I should be doing with the opportunities that I've had over the years? And is this the best use of my skills and experience? So with those two things, I thought, I don't think I like the way this is heading and where, where this is going. You know, I could have a really great life, but that for me isn't as fulfilling as on the purpose side of really being able to do something different and try and solve those social environmental problems that I cared about. And I'll use the example of when I was in management consulting, we did a program evaluation of a diabetes self-management program. It had $4 million of funding. It was helping people manage the risk of diabetes. Um, so when you have diabetes, you need to stick to your care program. Otherwise, there can be loss of eyesight, loss of limbs, really awful health outcomes. And the money being spent was really on a manual solution on people telling other people to take their medication. And for me, that just wasn't the way to do things. It wasn't a way to get scalable, positive health outcomes and um, wasn't using innovation and wasn't really thinking outside the box of what could be done differently to improve health outcomes. And so, you know, now thinking about what we've invested in a company called Perks, which is a chronic condition program adherence platform so an app that helps you using gamification and behavioral science stick to your program you know one in three people have a chronic disease in Australia 50% don't take their medication as prescribed you know, that is infinitely scalable that platform and with minimal investment you could reach thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people and that for me is really why I, I moved into this space and what has given me the faith that I made the right decision even though it felt really risky at the time and not the usual kind of doctor lawyer um, pathway which I think are great pathways but for me it wasn't where I was looking to, to go in terms of the, the impact and the private sector kind of scalable mindset that I was thinking about as well. It seems like venture is one of those industries where there's no sort of defined entryway. You know, there's no sort of set course, like venture capital is a sort of degree at university. And in fact, I was fascinated to see that sort of languages was one of, you know, your interests at that university. And I suppose, you know, the question in my mind is, are all backgrounds relevant if you want to become a venture capitalist? And then the second part of that question is, regardless of your background, how do you sort of build up the skills to being a great investor? It's definitely not a traditional kind of pathway to get into venture capital for most people. Um, I think there's a preconception that, and there probably 
it probably was the way in the earlier days, but as venture capital has become more mainstream, I think we need to pull people from areas other than finance and investment banking into the field. And I think about my university degree, so I did commerce arts and a diploma of modern languages. So I did Italian and Chinese at at, um, university. And for me, it was just, it helps you think differently by learning those creative disciplines. My arts degree, I think, was much more helpful than my commerce degree. I was cramming for all my commerce exams. Um, But for arts, it helped you think critically. And I think that, for me, really helped me in my career and then get into venture capital. So we've just released a post that is a new job for an analyst. So we're hiring at the moment. And we've said specifically that no investment experience is required. And what we're finding from peers in the industry is that very few women are applying to these roles. And we looked at various studies and it seems that it's not confidence necessarily that's the issue. It's around thinking about what the expectations are for experience and thinking that you may not have that experience and therefore not wanting to waste people's time. So I you know, have wanted to make it very clear With venture capital, there's no clear pathway. We don't care about your background. We are actually using a platform called Applied, which aims to remove unconscious bias from the recruitment process. It's a platform that we've actually invested in because we believe that the outcomes are better when you are avoiding unconscious bias wherever you can. So it's a blind hiring process. And uh, they've actually shown great results in hiring diverse candidates who otherwise would have been discriminated against because of their gender or name, cultural backgrounds. There are lots of things that we don't know that we're biased against because it's all unconscious. So that's been really important for us to use hiring approaches like that to show that anyone can get into venture capital. I think you've already touched on it, but just in terms of combining impact with venture, Can you sort of explain how the two of them fit together in terms of, you know, return sort of in its broader sense, sort of financial and then what other returns you're sort of striving for? Yeah, so we look for commercial scalable startups that have a social environmental benefit embedded in their business model. So what we mean by that is for every dollar of revenue, there's a unit of impact, whatever that might be for the business. So an example is... GoTerra, one of our portfolio companies, they breed black soldier flies to consume organic waste. So it's a maggot farm using robotic technologies to breed the maggots, very visceral term. Um, And they inherent in their business model is waste management. So they can only make revenue by managing waste. And so their impact metric is tonnes of waste diverted from landfill. So there's no way of stripping that out. As the revenue grows, the impact grows. And that's how we look at impact being embedded in the business model. So they need to be lockstep. And then we think about from a commercial perspective, the opportunity being big enough where the business could grow to 10 times its size from when we initially invest. So if we invest at a valuation of $5 million, then we need to be able to see the business can grow to a $50 million valuation over time. So that's how we see the the growth opportunity. And then from an impact perspective, we invest under three themes, health and wellbeing, sustainable living and empowering people. 
In terms of the sort of fun bits of your job, what, what are the things that you find most pleasurable? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It, for me, there are lots of aspects, but the most fun aspect is meeting founders that are doing their life's work that are really committed to solving the social or environmental problem that they've committed to because you know that they are so passionate about it that they've left everything else behind. You know, they're coming from really successful jobs that they've had in the past to pretty much some of them earning no no wage at all and really remortgaging their houses and doing everything they can, asking friends and family for money to build something that they really care about and understanding the genesis story for those founders and those businesses is the bit that gets me um, most excited and um, optimistic about the future of where we can go with these solutions and what can what problems we can solve that are that are really um, the biggest problems of our of our day. Venture feels like such an all-consuming activity. You sort of ne- presumably, you know, there's so many good ideas out there. You can never get across them all. What are the most challenging aspects of, of your role? On the flip side of the best part being meeting the founders, the most challenging aspect is declining founders and saying it's not the right fit. We respond to all the um, opportunities that we see And when we've met a founder and really understood kind of why they're doing the work that they're doing, but it's still not a fit for Giant Leap, it is really challenging to have that conversation because we encourage founders not to take it personally. You know, it's it's something that we see at the moment 1,200 deals a year. And so there are a lot um, and we might just be making the wrong decision. And so to really take that no as an opportunity to learn and maybe we're not the right investor. Often it comes to mind the idea that venture capitalists and and people that are really think that they're quite clever will often get these things wrong. So uh, I think about the back in the kind of 80s, 90s, um, AT&T commissioned McKinsey to write a report um, and forecast how many mobile phones there would be by the year 2000. There were, they forecast 900,000 and it was something like 109 million. So, um, you know, and that's a team of consultants working on a report forecasting the future. So we often try to encourage founders to kind of understand that we just might not be seeing the world that they're seeing and it's not personal, but it is really challenging every time. Beyond the impact metrics, what are the things that tip the balance for you in terms of feeling like this is a company you want to invest in versus one that's not quite the right fit? What are the criteria that you use? So as we've spoken about the impact aspect, so putting that aside, then there's team, the problem that they're solving their unique solution to solving that problem, the market opportunity, and then their traction to date. Those are the key areas that we really look at. And traction could be as minimal as a pilot contract or something to demonstrate that there's product market fit and that customers are willing to put their hand in their pocket and pay for the solution. And so, Founders often ask us, what specific milestones would you like us to meet? 
And that's a really hard question to answer because it depends on the business and it depends on the context that they're in and the competitors in the market. There are a whole lot of factors that influence how we see a business. So it's not that straightforward. And you know what I'd say to founders as well is often investors move the goalposts. So they might say this is what they want to see and then you might do it, but they might eventually decide that the context has changed and the goalposts have moved. So it's really challenging for founders and I totally acknowledge that. But if you can really demonstrate you do what you'll say you'll do, there is growth and growth potential through some of those metrics, then that can really help to build that story for investment. And I'm interested in in that list of criteria most of it is not sort of hardcore technical criteria. So it's, so it's not sort of how great is your code or how fantastic is your hardware. How important is, is the sort of technical element? And in your team, do you need to have the capacity to do deep technical diligence or is that something that is a bit secondary to those higher order metrics? So there's the fact that it needs to be a scalable solution. So the foundations of the tech need to be solid. And so how we test for that is basically things like customer feedback, using the platform ourselves and understanding how the product works and really getting into the functionality of the platform. We don't do a deep dive into the code um, or, you know, really digging deep into technical aspects um, because for us it's more about whether they can grow and scale their business without getting too bogged down in the detail. We do call on others in our network so we have around 90 investors in our first fund and we're raising our second fund right now as well so I have a pool of new investors and so our network is broad and it allows us to draw on experts in our network to ask questions about technical areas we might have either concerns about or lack knowledge where we can we try to identify what we don't know Uh, sometimes you don't know what you don't know (laughs) but then drawing on people around us to really fill those gaps from a technical perspective but Often these businesses are at the very early stages as well. So there's not a lot to deep dive into as well. This is like asking you which one is your favourite child, but out of the sort of 20-odd investments that Giant Leap's made, can you highlight some of the favourite investments that sort of demonstrate the, the success criteria that you need? Yeah, I think I'll use Work 180 as an example because diversity and inclusion is an area that I'm really passionate about and giving people equal opportunities and work 180 is a platform that flips the job model on its head it basically pre-screens employers before they're allowed to list their jobs to ensure that those employers support women in their careers so things like flexible working arrangements parental leave policies volunteer days things like that you get screened on before you can list And that means that there's a power flip, that women have the control in working out where the best place to work is. 
And they've grown into the UK and the US. There's a huge need for this kind of platform. So ensuring that there's transparency around policies and demonstrating that diverse teams outperform. And so because of their growth, it's showing that corporates and and organisations really care about diversity and they're doing something practical to create that change. And the founders, Gemma and Valeria, are phenomenal. They always do what they say they'll do. They're really driven. They're critical thinkers. They've grown an incredible team around them. They just really know what the big vision is. And I think that is one of the key aspects that we're looking for is that the founders are so mission driven that they will do what it takes to to grow the business and scale because ultimately if they do that then they'll create the impact that they want to see in the world what are some of the things you've learned from the entrepreneurs that you've worked with there's so much that i've learned it's it's phenomenal uh, just spending time with really inspirational people you learn something new every day and for me it's really been about understanding what you can achieve when you really care about the mission of the business and the fact that some of these founders have created what feels like something out of nothing you know they've had barely any capital behind them they've managed to make it work they've managed to build teams um, with very little capital they've grown their customer base by just getting out there and pounding the pavement they really have achieved the most phenomenal growth when they've got very little to do that with and I think that shows the resourcefulness and resilience of founders that are particularly running impact startups From the outside, it feels like you've made all the right steps and made really good choices all the way through, but have there been any setbacks or disappointments that you've you've learnt a lot from? So many. (laughs) I think anyone that says that they don't have those would either be kidding themselves or or have uh, just incredible luck, I think. But also it would be unfortunate for them because really you learn the most from, from those experiences. And the one that stands out for me is when I set up a not-for-profit about 10 or so years ago with my sister and brother-in-law and a, a friend to raise funds and awareness for motor neuron disease. So my brother-in-law had been diagnosed with motor neuron disease and we wanted to do something to raise awareness. I had never heard of motor neuron disease before. It's a degenerative autoimmune condition that people will often refer to Stephen Hawking as as the kind of most famous example of someone with with the illness. Um, But Stephen Hawking has has really outlived the life expectancy because the life expectancy is only around two years. And so raising awareness was really important for us. And um, my brother-in-law loved beer and, you know, craft beer. And so we thought we'd set up a not-for-profit that um, raised funds and awareness, but also helped set up a not-for-profit beer. And the unfortunate thing I learned during that period was that you have to put everything in writing. No matter what you think the good intentions are of everyone around you, you may not be on the same page of what that looks like. And so, unfortunately, there are a few things that happened and not not going into the gory details, but 
there were some disappointing behaviours and really with the, the brewers, they had used it very much as a marketing exercise and not so much with a commitment to bettering the cause and helping with raising funds and awareness for motor neuron disease. And for me, I was just shocked that people would do things out of that kind of self-interest rather than the greater cause. And it taught me a lot about no matter the intentions of people around you, if you have that codified in writing, then it doesn't really matter. You you won't necessarily know the genuine intentions. You can do your best to try and understand that at the outset. But people do things that might be out of character or might be not what you expected of them. And and people often surprise you. So in a good way and in a bad way. (laughs) But if you have those things clear from the outset, there are no issues around where to and and what you're trying to achieve. And so that was a really hard lesson to learn and something that I have taken into my career in venture capital and talking to lots of founders, especially founders that set up businesses with friends. They don't have any paperwork in place and they are setting themselves up for, for pretty challenging conversations down the track if they don't do that up front. You mentioned that, you know, people often surprise you. Is there anything that people are surprised to find out about you? Yeah, a lot of people are surprised to find out that I'm naturally introverted and I really need alone time. (laughs) I need to have that time to wind down. It's uh, hard in the the role of an investor because you do need to be out and about a lot and meeting people, which is great, but I love the one-on-one conversations I have with people and that deeper connection I can get. When it's big crowds and um, meeting lots of people at once, it takes a lot of energy for me and I tend to then just kind of get into bed, roll up with a donor and just need a book or just, just to lie there to regain my energy because it can be a bit overwhelming as an introvert to have that kind of constant yeah, engagement and um, socialising that, that needs to happen in, in this role. And don't get me wrong, I do, I do love meeting people and getting out there, as I said earlier, but the energy levels I need to just manage um, because of that kind of introversion. Yeah, and I can imagine it's even more challenging for you because you're you're a bit of a poster child for women in venture. So there's not that many female check writers in the venture industry. It's sort of getting better, but you know you're one of the better known and and you know as I opened with one of the sort of respected and my guess is there's lots and lots of invitations for you to speak at things and go to things and and be a role model. For you, you know, who have been your role models? Who are the sort of mentors or or people in your life that have, you know, really helped you become who you want to be? There have been a lot of people in my life that have supported me along the way. And the two that I'll I'll share is actually um, a couple parents of my very good friends from when I was six years old. They created stability for me when I was growing up and really have been just so influential in that care that they gave. You know, I wasn't their child, but they treated me like their child and provided that stability growing up and that generosity that they showed to never kind of ask questions or never get annoyed that I was always at their house and really that kindness that they showed to me and that love and care 
while I was growing up have, has been really influential. And then as I've been entered adulthood, they've always been there for me. Uh, you know, they helped when we were buying a house and, you know, looking, going through inspections and then setting up this. Um, so Giant Leaps recently spun out of the um, Impact Investment Group and being able to have conversations about being a business owner, um, you know, with them as well. All of those things, just being a sounding board has been incredibly influential and I think they really stand out to me as being really the key role models for me. Um, and then when you think more broadly into kind of inspirational people, it's people like Sally Krawcheck who set up Elevest, um, Arlen Hamilton who set up Backstage Capital. She raised a fund for underrepresented founders um, starting with black women as the starting point from her own experience she raised that fund when she was homeless which is just phenomenal to think about the grit um, that needed to kind of take place to really commit to raising that fund and getting out there and telling her story and being authentic with that story I think really makes a difference when you're being authentic with what you're trying to achieve, people it resonates, and she was able to share that and and raise a fund and back underrepresented founders. So, people like that really inspire me to continue the the work and really just make me think I need to just get on and do things rather than wondering where to next. You just get out and do things, and then you can achieve what you you hope to achieve. What's some of the best advice you've ever received? The one piece of advice I think about often feels like every day. I think about the concept of your energy as dollars and having a fixed amount every day. And so where you're thinking mindfully about where you want to spend those dollars and what you get back for those dollars, that return on investment and thinking if there's a, relationship interaction where people are really testing you and you're feeling like you're spending a lot of energy on that and not getting anything back when you use down those dollars then it means you've got an empty tank for the relationships you care about so your family and friends um, those around you whether you want to be a good sister or mother or friend if you don't have the energy in the tank because you've used it on someone that actually doesn't matter, um, then you can't develop those relationships and form really meaningful relationships and put that, that energy into areas you care about. And so being mindful about that every day, and it takes a, a conscious effort to do that because it's easy to get wound up and caught up in situations where you might think that, you know, you just get caught up in the heat of the moment and you spend a lot of energy and it might not be of any value. So trying to make sure that you're conscious of that. In terms of filling up the tank as a fellow introvert, you know, things away from work that help you fill up the tank, are there sort of books or podcasts or things that, you know, are really special to you that you would recommend to others? Yeah, there are lots of podcasts that I listen to. I jump around depending on what I'm feeling like on the day. So On Being with Krista Tippett is a nice one. Um, and, you know, looking at kind of psychology and the TED Radio Hour, just thinking about learning different things. Then there are more in the venture capital space. So 
A16Z, um, how I built this inspiration. There are that's more in the kind of startup and venture capital world. And then there are things like Good Future with John Treadgold that's focused on impact investment. So it depends on how I'm feeling, whether I want to relax and think philosophically or <laughs> learn something new or be focused on startups and investments. So that's, I, I really move around depending on the mood. And a favourite book? The one that I go to the most and recommend people read is The Righteous Mind. And so it's by a moral psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. He starts the book with people tell you not to talk about money, religion and politics, but this is a book about how you should talk to these, talk to people about these topics and, and why. And so it talks about the moral foundations that often the conversations we have and challenges we have of different perceptions and arguments we, we might have with each other stem from values rather than logic. And so understanding that and not getting frustrated, understanding people's perspectives um, rather than necessarily arguing on a point because it logically makes sense. The examples he used, so he used his research ground as McDonald's because you'd get a cross-section of people from all different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds and would ask questions like, a family accidentally runs over their dog in the driveway. No one saw them do it. They heard dog meat's delicious, so they skin it and eat it. Is it morally wrong? And as a dog lover, I really just get really jarred by that example and think that's so wrong. I can't imagine doing that. And then and saying things like, but they probably love the dog. Why would they do that? It, all of those things are absolutely irrational. When you think about it, logically, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's the values that drive us and our feelings and emotions that influence how we react and how we interact with with people um, and concepts and so really understanding those moral foundations that people typically rely on makes a lot more sense when you're when you can understand where someone's coming from. You do a lot. So obviously you're one of the most respected venture capitalists, particularly in impact, but you're also the co-chair of Startup Victoria and you're a member of the Victorian State Government's Innovation Task Force. In terms of productivity hacks, you know, to fit it all in, anything that you would recommend to others? There are quite a few that, that come to mind, but the most important one for me is making sure that I have a meeting-free day each week. And that's quite hard to do <laughs> um, when you've got a lot of people to meet with and people are asking to kind of book into your diary and because I hate saying no and I hate kind of not meeting people's expectations and so sometimes having to push people out a few weeks to make sure I clear that day means that I have the... Um, space for that deep thought and the productivity gains are immense from that because there are no switching costs during that day you can just commit to planning out the day in a way that suits your own behavior and rhythm to ensure that you can be as productive as possible um, and then other ones are the idea of just do it in my head is every time you touch something 
the more and more times you touch it, the more inefficient you're being. And so trying not to put off tasks that I don't want to do, <laughs> I'm trying not to procrastinate. If it's going to take me a minute, just do it. Advice for entrepreneurs, particularly if they're at that stage of thinking that they might want to or need to raise capital? First and foremost, I would say understand what you're getting yourself into. Understand what it means to raise capital. And you can do that a couple of different ways. You can read capital raising guides, you know, Stone and Chalk released one, I think it was last year really understanding what different types of capital there are out there, what a convertible note is, what it means to do an equity raise versus um, revenue-based financing. There are a lot of different options out there, but really understanding whether or not you need it in the first place is key because a lot of people think that it's a goal in and of itself, but it really isn't if you don't need that capital. So that's you know, firstly understanding the capital raising process and what it means and then secondly understanding the types of investors you want on your cap table who you want as part of the business it is a long-term relationship but really thinking about what other founders say about those investors because investors will talk themselves up they'll say they're a great investor they'll provide you with networks and customers and talent and all sorts of things but uh, the founders that they work with will tell you the truth about how they are as investors. So making sure you speak to uh, other founders that have raised and understand who, who there is out there from an investment perspective. So last question, what are the things that you're really optimistic about? I read a stat the other day that uh, impact investing in Australia has grown to $29 billion in 2020 from 19.9 billion in 2019. So that's significant growth in a year. And what it says to me and what we're realising in raising Giant Leap Fund 2 is that people really care now. They're really starting to care about where they put their money and what the influence of capital has on the, the world in terms of solving our so, the social and environmental problems that are facing us today. And I think with the pandemic and the bushfires in early 2020, there just so many factors have made us stop and think, where do we want to spend our time and where do we want to put our capital? And that makes me really optimistic about the exponential growth we should be seeing in the coming years and have already been seen into impact areas and specifically impact startups. If impact investing no longer is niche and is just the way you invest, it's standard investing, then that's our job done. It's just been so fabulous to spend time with you, Rachel. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and um, Good luck with the um, balance of the, the raise for your second fund and um, I'm sure we'll be seeing brilliant results that come out of the companies that you invest in. Thanks so much, Catherine. Great to chat. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like Scale Investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. 
That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.